0: You're listening to sermons from Church on Bayshore in Niceville, Florida. Our mission is to do whatever it takes to see people believe in Jesus, belong to God's family, and become who God created them to be, impacting the world for Christ. To learn more about our church and to find additional resources, including ways to connect, serve, and give, visit churchonbayshore.org. I just want to say to those who are visiting with us or maybe watching online for the first time, that we're so grateful that you are with us and that we would love to connect with you. You can text the word CONNECT uh, to the number uh, that is going to be on the screen and one of our CONNECT team members will follow up with you uh, this week and we'd love to answer any questions that you might have. Also wanna remind everyone who's a part of our church or even if you've been checking out our church for some time that two weeks from today, Sunday night, February 4th, we have our annual Vision Night uh, where we celebrate uh, all that God has done and look to the future and I have never uh, anticipated one of these evenings as much as I do this one I am so excited about things we get to praise God for and things we will be looking to as we look forward and so hope you make plans to be there at five o'clock on Sunday night February 4th there's a reception uh, to follow so if you hang around you get some free food so I uh, would love to have you there well um Maybe you're not that familiar with it, but typically in a church like ours, whenever there's a pastoral vacancy, what happens is a team is formed, and they, you know, begin to pray and look for, uh, you know, the next pastor. And so, a little over six years ago, that happened here, and... um, I was one of the people they were considering. Long story short, they sent this questionnaire uh, to me. And on that questionnaire were all kinds of questions about theological issues. And then your standard questions like, have you ever been arrested? And typically when you're looking for a pastor, you're hoping the answer to that is no. And my answer to that question was yes. uh, Because some of you may not know this, but I was arrested in China. Um, in 2004 for distributing religious propaganda. And so, uh, you know, obviously that strikes up a good conversation typically. So what happened in the summer of 2004 is um, I had been working uh, for a mortgage company and going to school part-time and felt a call to ministry and so I was planning to move to the pain handle to a small Bible college, Baptist University of Florida now in the fall of 2004 and I realized, hey, I'd like to take advantage of the summer in between and so I signed up uh, to go on a mission trip to China and to Southwest China and to remote parts where there's little access to the gospel and uh, hopes to advance the gospel and distribute religious material uh, in certain places in their language. They didn't have the full Bible and the dialect. So we did this hiking thing. The first day went awesome. We hiked through uh, these beautiful places, uh, weren't really able to strike up too many conversations, uh, but camped the next day. Uh, we're hiking. Uh, we're setting up, you know, distributing religious stuff. I actually had a good conversation with somebody and then we're setting up camp for the night, and here comes a mob of 40 to 50 people, and in there are police, and they loaded us up, um, put three of us in one uh, SUV with two uh, officers, put the other guy by himself uh, with four people, drove us into the city, uh, and put us in this customs holding uh, jail, and told us they were gonna interrogate us the next day. And, you know, um, I was pretty frustrated because uh, we, you know, I, I spent money, uh, gave up this time. I uh, had a girlfriend at the time who I ended up marrying uh, and I didn't get to see her for this time. And uh, there were other things I could have done. And you know, it was just kind of a frustrating experience. And I've come to realize that the frustration of many of us is due to the ideology that following Jesus means that everything will go smooth. But in fact, not only are we exempt from not exempt from trials. When we attempt great things for God, but often our attempt of great things for God brings adversity. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul addresses the adversity that he faces, and he helps us understand the effects of his trial. And with that, we are taught some things about trials that should affect how we live and that should be a part of our brand. What we are known for should be people who in the midst of adversity, in the midst of trial, look to and reflect Christ. And so let's read our verses for today and then let's look at what we learn from them and hopefully we will be challenged to lean in to Christ and God's will during trial and inspired with the joy that comes from Christ. Philippians chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 12 through uh, 21. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I I pray that you would be glorified from our time in your word. I pray that the gospel would advance from our time in your word. I pray that we would be more like you, more dependent on you, and just more aware of how much glory you deserve because of our time this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The first thing that I'd like us to look at from these verses is the reason for the trial. The Philippians were aware that Paul was in prison, but they were not aware of how God was at work. And you have to imagine that there are those who thought our finest evangelist and strongest leader has been shut away and who presume that this is going to hinder the church. But what we discover is the opposite of this. When Paul talks about what has happened to him, it is unclear whether he is referring to all that has happened to him or just what is happening to him in Rome. He could be writing about the fact that he has been in prison for two years, that he was shipwrecked, that he was involved in a riot, or maybe he was just talking about his imprisonment and how he was being treated in Rome. He has enough material for a whole country music album with all the complaints that he can make. But what is clear is that what he is referring to served to advance the gospel. Right there in verse 12, he says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Epaphroditus, who is delivering this letter, would give details to the Philippians on how Paul was doing. Paul is not writing about the details. He's giving a divine perspective not a detailed perspective. Now, let me say two things about this. First, is there are often painful details involved in trials, and we should be sensitive to those. We need to cling to the divine perspective, but the reality is our marriage that we're struggling through or that we struggled through might bring up a lot of hurt. And when we're ministering to someone who's going through that or been through that, we need to be sensitive. It is true that ultimately, whatever trauma we went through in our childhood or maybe even as an adult, God redeems and uses. But if we're ministering to someone, we must be sensitive to the reality of the pain of that trauma. It's true that failure stings and may continue to bring up stings for the rest of our life. And and failure could be self inflicted, but the reality is when we're ministering to people, we need to be sensitive to the pain that is associated with that. We need to be sensitive to the reality of the pain of these details. But also, the divine perspective is essential to our trial. And while we analyze and we minister to and we talk about the details of trials, ultimately the focus of Christians must be the divine perspective of the trial. It's where the hope really comes from. In our uncertainties, the certainty of the advancement of God's purpose is to be our security and hope. In our uncertainties, the certainty of the advancement of God's purpose is to be our security and our hope. You and I need to recognize this. We need a theology an understanding of God that embraces this. I have seen in this church people who cannot reconcile difficult things happening to them and God being good, who have then been sidetracked or who have lost the faith. You and I are not the center of the universe. My five-year-old thinks he's the center of the universe. It is Stevie's world and we are all just characters in that world. We play supporting roles. We work on that for kids. But I know some adults who still think this and act like this. Our temporal happiness is not the purpose of creation. Our Definition of happiness isn't the purpose of the creator. God has not promised us an earthly life empty of suffering. But God himself has emptied himself and suffered for the purpose of eternal life that is empty of any suffering. The divine purpose of God having a people who enjoy him forever is what everything revolves around. The advancement of the gospel in this life on earth is what this life is about. That's the reason. God created a world to bring him glory, a people to bring him glory, and we have sinned and we have fallen short of the glory of God, and God is restoring us to himself. That's the purpose. And sometimes we get to see the effects of that purpose play out before us. Such is the case with what Paul is going through and what he's writing. So the reason for the trial is the divine purpose, the advancement of the gospel. But here we see results of the trial. Paul starts off this thought in our passage today with the phrase, I want you to know in verse 12. I want you to know is a literary device that says, here's the focus. Here's what I want you to take away. What he is saying is the details of my situation are not what is important. What is important, what I want you to know, brothers, is that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And then he tells two ways that that has happened. One result is found in verse 13. Verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. One of the results of what Paul is going through, the trial that Paul is going through, is the consciousness of God's presence, the consciousness of God's presence. I I am fairly convinced that most people are deists. A deist is someone who believes that there is a God, but believes he, she, or whatever created us and left us on our own. I don't think many people are truly atheists, like believe there's not a God. I I believe that they're deist or agnostic because they're deist and they don't really know much about that personal God. And I I think a lot of religious people even don't see God as present. And so they are deist. I'm simplifying here, but I believe most people who would have been around Paul in Rome would fall into the category of believing in God, but not really living with and for God. God changed that through Paul's imprisonment. The phrase, the whole imperial guard, translates praetorium, which means military headquarters. And there's significant debate on whether or not this refers to the place or the people. And then who exactly Paul is referring to. But then he says, to all the rest. Scholars estimate that anywhere from several hundred to 9,000 people are being referred to here. And every one of them know that the reason Paul is imprisoned is for Christ. Whoever they are and how many of them there are, they know the reason Paul's here is for Christ. And the important question for us is, how did people come to know that Paul is there for Christ? Paul's proclamation showed God's purpose. Paul's proclamation showed God's purpose. Paul was imprisoned, but it was clear who Paul saw as in control and who therefore Paul chose to serve even in his imprisonment. In his letter to the Ephesians, likely written from the same place, Paul said who he was a prisoner for. Ephesians chapter three, verse one. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ or a prisoner of Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles. God had him there, and it was for the advancement of the gospel. He didn't say, I'm a prisoner of Caesar, or whoever the jailer was. He said, I'm a prisoner of Christ. And it was unjust that Paul was there. He didn't deserve to be there. And there were people around him who treated him harshly. And there were probably believers who should have done more and cared more. And Paul says, I shouldn't be here. You shouldn't treat me the way you're going to treat me. And you should do more. But you know what? All of y'all are going to hear about Jesus. That's the Southern Greek that he used in that. Alistair Begg says, and they would have heard him pray. Oh God, I thank you that you put me in here. And I thank you that my brother came to see me here. And I thank you for the guy that's chained to me here, Lord. And I thank you that he got to hear everything we've said. And I thank you that the guy that relieved him on the day shift yesterday, he got to hear it too. Oh God, you are in control. And I bless you. And what this did is it made others conscious of God and his presence. When we are in circumstances that we may not want to be in, around people who we may not want to be around, not being treated like we should be, but our hope and life is found in Christ, he makes others aware of who Christ is. But not only did it result in the awareness of God, For those who did not know God, but it also resulted in the confidence of God's people. Confidence of God's people. Look at verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul says... The way that God is using me to proclaim the gospel through imprisonment is emboldening other believers to share the gospel, even though they know of the threats that exist. This would be encouraging to the Philippians and Christians who would receive this letter to hear about their fellow Christians in Rome. Now, now I just want to sit here for a moment and make sure we really absorb this. The result of persecution was the church preaching the word of God. In Acts chapter 4, we don't have time to turn there this morning, but I encourage you to read it this week. Peter and John are arrested for preaching the gospel after healing a lame man. And they're told to stop by the authorities. And when they're told to stop, they say, look, you stand before God for what you do with us, but we will not stop because we cannot help but to speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they return to the church to report, hey, the persecution is increasing, they pray with the church. Not for the persecution to stop. Not for people to magically change. Not for things to be easy. They pray for more boldness to preach the word of God. When we talk with our friends in India, who are experiencing more and more persecution for their faith, they ask us not to pray for the persecution to stop. They ask us to pray for the Holy Spirit to empower his people to spread the gospel regardless of the circumstances. What is happening through Paul is like a stick that is on fire that begins to catch the other sticks in that fire on fire and it begins to spread in the midst of persecution in the midst of challenge the reason for the trial is the advancement of the gospel and through the perseverance of Paul and the proclamation of the gospel of Paul people are now being encouraged to share the gospel, gospel more boldly look It's election year. I pray that we would have godly officials and godly leaders. But listen, the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ does not depend on who is president of the United States of America. The advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ depends on the power of the Holy Spirit in his people. And Jesus said he will build his church. And when we face trial, that is when God's people should depend on the Holy Spirit to empower us more. This should be how we live our lives. And so what we have here, thank you, I appreciate that. What we have here is God at work in his people and the joy of his people increasing in the midst of persecution, in the midst of trial. But if you notice, we see the reaction to that joy. Paul gets pretty real with us here in verse 15. He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. He says, some preach Christ from envy and rivalry. So to be sure that you understand, Paul, speaking to how some have grown in boldness of preaching the word, is saying there are some who are preaching Christ whose motives are not good. They're doing this from a place of envy and rivalry. The best way that I could translate that for you, well, is envy and rivalry because that's what all the scholars who are smarter than me did. But to explain it to you is to say that people are jealous and competitive with Paul and the other gospel preachers. So their reaction to the joy that is resulting in the church of God is envy and rivalry that is rooted in selfish ambition. He goes on to say in verse 17, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So I think, given the structure of Paul's writing, here's what he's saying. I think we have a diagram that shows this. So there's selfish ambition in the heart of these people who are preaching Christ. That selfish ambition sees the success of Paul's ministry. And because they have selfish ambition in their heart, they're envious and competitive with Paul. But then they preach Christ. George Guthrie says this describes a conniving ladder climber. Paul says in verse 17 that they're doing it not sincerely, that their motives are not pure, and their religion is a means to the selfish ambition that they have in their heart. It's interesting what he says in verse 17. They're doing it thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So to use modern language, Paul was trending. And what was happening, and I know this sounds wild, is they were saying, well, we'll, we'll become bolder about the gospel because I think that'll make it harder for Paul. And then we'll eventually, you know, we'll, people will begin to listen to us. And you might think that's crazy, but listen, jealousy and self-centeredness, the desire for position, the desire for influence, rear their ugly heads when the gospel is being preached. Don't you think for a moment that that doesn't happen, where people do the right things and preach the right sermons and sing the right songs, but God, who knows our hearts, recognizes that our motives are all wrong. When you see somebody on social media who seems to have a life that's better than yours and you begin to be motivated to say, I gotta make sure people know my life is good or this aspect of my life is good. When you see people who are serving and you serve because you can't let them serve and you not serve, Or you see people who aren't serving, and you think, well, if I serve the church, at least I'm not like them. Or you move into a leadership role, and by leading, you begin to feel good about yourself because you get the credit for some of the things that are happening. I remember being in a pastor's conference or church conference, can't remember, and a pastor saying, how many of you want revival in your town? And everybody raises their hand, of course. And then the pastor said, what if God did it through another church than yours? Our desire should not be our own selfish ambition. It should be the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we do see that, of course. Goodwill rooted in the gospel, Paul says. Goodwill rooted in the gospel. Yes, there's the reaction of joy that's envy and rivalry that comes from selfish ambition, but there's also goodwill that comes from the gospel. In verse 15, he says, others from goodwill. Almost all translations use that phrase. You could also say from delighting in what is right. And then Paul says in the next verse, the latter do it out of love. And that's that word agape, that unconditional sacrificial love. And so just like we saw those who are preaching Christ from selfish ambition and then envy and rivalry, we also have those who are rooted in the gospel. And I think we have a diagram that just shows that and what it should be, right? We're rooted in the gospel. And because we're rooted in the gospel, the fact that for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's not about me anymore because of who Jesus is and what he's done. My love for him and my love for others begins to grow. And I preach Christ because I want them to know Jesus Christ. Paul says, and, and it creates a partnership. In verse 17, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. Paul says, they see me as their partner. They want, they see what God is doing in me. So so to summarize here, this point, the Lord is interested, not only in what we're doing, but also in why we're doing it. If I wanna go and serve God overseas to show the world how fantastic of a missionary I am, I should stay home. If I want to teach the Bible in order that people might understand what a wonderful ability I have, I should just make YouTube videos about politics or sports or whatever. If I want to lead because I want to be respected as a leader, I should just play Sims or Minecraft or whatever create your own world thing is good now. We have to check our motives here and make sure we're doing it not out of selfish ambition. In the, in the summer of 2005, uh, I was chosen to intern at a pretty large church down in South Florida. Uh, they had several interns. I was the only one picked from our college, and um, I felt pretty good about that. And uh, here I, you know, I'd quit uh, the mortgage industry, and now already I was beginning to have opportunities in in the ministry world. So um, I get there on day one, and this other guy, I was 21 or 22, this other guy who was 18 or 19, who was actually involved in leading worship at their church, he was chosen to be an intern. And so on the first day, they gave out assignments, and they began to tell some of the other people, like, hey, you're going to go do this cool thing, do this cool thing. And they looked at the two of us, and they said, hey, you're going to go clean all the restrooms on the campus, And I was like, what? I didn't say that, but I was like, I came here to learn how to be a great pastor. You saw this greatness in me. And now on day one, I'm just cleaning the restrooms. And as we're in there, I realized these restrooms have to be cleaned for this church to do what it's called to do. And it's, God's using me to do that this week. I'm telling you, in that moment, in that restroom, God taught me more about what ministry was maybe than just about anything else in my life. We all have different roles, different proximity, different prominence, different skills, different talents. But at the heart of every single one of us is a servant who says, Jesus, use me to advance your purpose. Jesus, use me to advance your kingdom. And that's how we should live our lives, And that's what ministry should flow out of. And if you live your life wanting to be eulogized in a great way, then you ought not to bring Jesus in the story because he wants the glory. It's not about yours. You need to know that God ultimately cares about not just the words we speak and the deeds we do, but the motive we have for saying and doing those things. Now, listen, as a Christian, it can be very frustrating if you're trying to be a servant of Jesus Christ and you see people who are doing it with bad motives. But notice in verse 18, Paul kind of brings this back to the first verse. In verse 18, he says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ has proclaimed in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. So he says, yes, there are people who are doing this out of bad motives, but the gospel is going forth. Listen, now this is, this is for some of us. If we believe theologically that God uses what is bad for good, then we ought to be primarily influenced in ministry. By that, when considering the fact that people have bad motives. Now, Paul isn't talking about a false gospel and being okay with a false gospel here. He clearly addresses that in Galatians. But Paul is saying people are preaching the right thing with the wrong motives, and God is using it. And let your hope be in that and not those people. And some people will say, you know, it's challenging because of people to really believe in Jesus. Right? Like we look to the, the corruption of the Catholic church back in the day, and we look at corruption that happened in the European church, and we look at you know church corruption that happened in the early church in America, and things that have happened in this century, and we see all the problems with the church, and we think, I can't believe in God. And I'll just tell you, I see all those problems, and I realize Jesus was right when he said he was going to build his church, because all of our stupidity can't stop God from keeping his word. And to me, being around us as sinners, I love you, but you're sinners, and our mess helps me realize who's in charge and who's in power and how he keeps his word. And that's where our hope comes from. Listen, there are churches even in our area who I don't think are doing things the right way, preaching the gospel the way they should, and people get saved in those churches and come to a church like ours and really begin to be discipled. It it makes me so mad that they got saved in that church and not ours. But that's the sovereignty of God and the power of God that he loves people so much that he's taking messed up systems and using them for his grace. That doesn't mean we excuse our sin, but it means that we recognize how great God is. All right, so lastly, let's close. The resolve of joy, verse 19. Paul says, for I know that through your prayers, and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, when he says this will turn out for my deliverance, it's almost a word-for-word translation of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of Job chapter 13, verse 16. So Paul looks at his situation through the lens of Scripture. Can I just say, look at your situation through the lens of Scripture. Do not look at Scripture through the lens of your situation. And to do that, you have to know scripture and you have to read scripture through the lens of the divine purpose. And what Job said in his trial in Job chapter 13, verse 13 through 16 was this. Let me have silence and I will speak and let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh and my teeth and put my life in my hand? Though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. What Job is saying here, and if you've read the story of Job, it's such a gift to us to see the adversity that God allows Job to go through. And Job is saying here, hey, I'm gonna talk to you, God. And even though his words are that you're slaying me, that's what it feels like at least, I'll put my hope in you, and you're going to save me through this God. And, you know, that's the reality that God certainly allows, maybe causes affliction in our life, and he saves us out of it. He shows who he is out of it. And that might be hard for us to embrace unless we recognize that the divine purpose is the advancement of the gospel. The divine purpose is that eternal life matters more than temporal life. And once we really agree to that, that heaven is worth adversity, then we can reconcile this. Someone, I, I don't know the context, I'm trying to remember, but came to me about uh, maybe we, our youth group sang the song. I don't know. There's a song that quotes this, this by Shane and Shane, Though You Slay Me. And they were saying, I don't like seeing that song. And I was like, It's scripture. It's scripture. And I know that it's hard for us. And I think a big part of why it's hard for us is because we as Westerners tend to think that life is always about if I do this, then I advance to this next step and whatever it may be. But I want you to look at how Paul closes this in verse 20. He says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. He says, God's saving me, and he's going to be honored through me, whether I die here or I live here. Our missionaries, when they go overseas to places where there's not freedom of religion, they're not guaranteed life, but they want to be honored by Christ and life or death. Our brothers and sisters across the world who are being persecuted for their faith, who daily people are being slaughtered. I know we forget about it because the NFL playoffs are on, but who are daily being slaughtered. God is their salvation. I know some of you are in non Christian homes, and all the blessings of following the Lord that come when we're in community, you don't experience that daily, but God is your salvation. On a a lesser level, when we lead and people aren't with you or they criticize us, God is our salvation. When there's conflict with people because of our beliefs, when friendships shatter because of our beliefs, and look, if you're moralistic, you're not gonna have any arguments with somebody in Knightsville, but if you believe the gospel, you will. When spiritual attacks happen, God is our salvation. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We'll really unpack that next week but underpinning all that Paul writes is an unshakable confidence in the providence of God that he will use all things to advance the gospel. The source of joy in trial is the fact that Christ went through the ultimate trial for our joy. The source of joy and trial is the fact that Christ went through the ultimate trial for our ultimate joy. And so when we think I don't deserve this and why are you putting me through this? And God says eternal life is worth it to live as Christ dies as gain, we look to Christ who didn't deserve it and went through it so that we could have it. And that's the joy we have. And so we preach Christ wherever we are. Frank Fillman says, Christians in every generation have had to take courageous stands for the gospel against the prevailing winds in which they have lived. And sometimes circumstances make that hard. But we preach Christ. If you are familiar with sports, you know, you do your job. You you keep going regardless of the circumstances, regardless of how difficult the opponent is, how bad the referees are, what the environment is. You don't give up. That's not just a joke about the FSU bowl game. I mean that generally speaking. The Bible constantly connects things to the military and the mission and doing what you're called to do. And what we're called to do is to preach Christ. I heard Francis Chan tell a story about a pastor who was in traffic and he saw this 75-year-old man driving who wasn't the best driver and he kind of like drove a bicyclist off the road. And so they, they pull up to a stop sign and the bicyclist gets up to the car pulls the 75-year-old man out who's frail and starts beating him. And so the pastor then gets out of his car and goes to save the 75-year-old man. And, and, and Francis Chan asked the audience, he says, how many of you would have got out and do that, done that? And everybody's, of course, of course I would, you know, have got out and helped him. And then he said this, how many people around you are headed to hell and you don't stop and make an intentional effort to save them from an eternity separated from God. Preach Christ. That's why we're here. Look to Christ. We gotta make sure our heart isn't full of selfish ambition. There are ministry fallouts over and over. I mean, you could read the statistics. So many people are dropping out of pastoral ministry, partly because of our culture, partly because of the internet and all the criticism and all those things, but... And I, I'm not discrediting all that, but at the end of the day, like I think part of it is that a lot of us got into ministry not just because of the gospel. Because if we deserve nothing, then even in trial to live as Christ. And we keep on. And so I would just encourage you to evaluate your motives as to why you're doing what you're doing. And maybe the reason you're constantly frustrated with people is because Jesus isn't enough motivation for you, and then cling to Christ in the trial. When I was arrested in China, I, I got out, by the way, in case you didn't know that. Um, that morning, as the four of us are preparing for the interrogation, they called us in one; by, they would call us in one by one, talking about what we're going to say, make sure our stories were together. I said, guys, and I was just reading in Genesis. I said, guys, and when Abram lied, it really didn't. I mean, God used it, but it didn't, didn't go well. And I, I just think we got to tell, like, we came to China to tell people about Jesus. I think we need to tell them that. I think we may never know why he had us here, but that's why he had us here. And then the guy who had been put in the car by himself said, yeah. So yesterday, when we were driving, it was a long drive from the village to the, to the city. He was in this car with four Chinese people, three of them police officers, one who spoke English. And they put in the CD that we had that had stories of the gospel on it because they didn't have the Bible, even in their you know full Bible in their dialect. And he said, they pulled the car over. They talked for a minute and she looked at me and she said, do you believe this? Do you believe that this man walked on water and that he fed all these people? And he said, I just said the first thing that came to my mind, he said, if he saved me, he can do any of it. Y'all, I will never know this side of heaven, why God had me where he had me, and what God did with us on that trip. And I think when we look at the things we go through in our life and the way things go down, We think, when I get to heaven, I'm gonna have all these questions for God. No, you're not. When you get to heaven and you see Jesus, you're gonna bow on your knees, crying, thankful for his mercy, And he's going to wipe away every tear from your eye and say, come into my glory. And one moment of affliction will not be worth comparing to the glory that we will see. That's where we hold our hope today, church. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray that if there's somebody here who hasn't surrendered to you, they think they're the center of the universe. God, it doesn't take much to see that that's a lie. And I pray that they would recognize that they've made this life into something that you never intended it to be. And yet they would know the truth that you sent Jesus because we can't earn righteousness. We can't pull ourselves up by our bootstrap and work hard to resolve, but we need your help for righteousness. And you gave it to us in the mercy of Christ, through the blood of Christ. And I pray that they would surrender to you today. And I pray that your people your people would look to you, be motivated by you and what you've done for us and all things. And for those of my brothers and sisters who are going through it right now, may they cling to you. In Jesus' name I pray.